Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for an episode of the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. We're going to be talking about World War Z. The book. The book by Max Brooks. If you have seen World War Z, the movie, and you figure you can probably listen to this because you know all the spoilers already, don't. You're wrong. You're wrong. Because the book and the movie share exactly one thing. The title. The title. So stop what you're doing and go read the book. Listen to the audiobook, in fact, because it's a graphic audiobook and it's pretty fucking cool. A star-spangled cast. It is. It's got Mark Hamill. It's got Nathan Fillion. Every once in a while, I'll be watching a movie and somebody from the graphic audiobook will pop up and I'll be like, oh. I recognize them. They're in World War Z. It has um, Seven of Nine. Yep. Whose name I just lost. <laughs> Seven of um, Nine. Jerry Ryan. Jerry. Ryan. Okay. Yeah. Seven of Nine. Um, yeah. Really good. Just excellent. And the book is excellent. So stop. Go read it. You don't want me to spoil it. There's a lot of really good. And you know what's really good about this book is it really pulls you through. You get the sense of a plot, but it does not have a plot. It is all uh, like narrative exposition. It's interview style. Yes. It's an interview book about the end of the, about the you zombie were, apocalypse. You were watching My Love from the Stars. Yes. And. Which is a K-drama. A K-drama. Uh-huh. But they have this mechanic that they use where they have the main character being interviewed by somebody. Right. We never find out who. No. It doesn't matter. The entire purpose is for him to, in an organic way, do an info dump. Yeah. Explaining his background and the whole world and whatever. And it works super effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because he's not telling us like an overarching story. Right. He's just telling anecdotes or explaining something. Right. And that's what this entire And that's book is. exactly what World War Z does. And it's broken up into sections. And it really kind of, the amount of thought work that Max Brooks put into this is, is unreal. It's astounding. It's astounding. Just how smoothly everything works and how comprehensive. Yeah the stories were and there is no part in it where i'm like that's unrealistic that's unrealistic i'm like yes that yes thank you when i think back about the stories in this book i imagine the hours and hours and hours that he probably spent figuring out who to talk to yeah and who those experts would be right and then all the time actually interviewing them Right. I mean, he talks to, I mean, we get a political perspective. We get a military perspective. We get a social perspective. We get a From multiple different countries and cultures. Yeah. Not just like, here's how the zombie war went down in America. In fact, we spend very little time in America. I think um, the soldier who is played by Mark Hamill is the only like American, consistent Uh, American character. There's the female fighter, uh, the female pilot. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think but I, there's only two There's or only three a couple Americans. of characters that we talk to more than once. Oh yeah. And yeah. Mark Hamill's character is one of them and he's the soldier and we he is a, he has a section in each chunk because we're kind of following It's kind of three acts. Yeah, it's really three acts. It's like the beginning, which is literally the beginning and it's like literally the way that it started. This was written pre-pandemic 
and it it was basically a primer for how the beginning so of the pandemic point. went. Yes. Yeah. Where I remember seeing an article that was like, oh, there's this new kind of cold that is showing up in airports in China, but don't worry, people with it are not being allowed to get on the plane. It's never coming here. You're like, oh, okay. Well, no, it's just a cold. Who cares? Right? That's fine. And then all of a sudden, oh, there's a case. It just showed up. But don't worry. It's just a cold. It's not going to go anywhere. So at the very beginning, we find out that there, there were these rumors of thing of this thing called African rabies. And the reason it's called African rabies is because the first reports of break of like outbreaks are in Africa, but it's actually been happening in China for a long time. A while. A while. And we talked to a high up in the Israeli Israeli government. Jürgen Wormbrun. <laughs> I have it right here. Jürgen Wormbrun. And he's talking about like, yeah, we we knew stuff was happening in China because we cracked their code. We follow their code. But they were literally talking about like people coming back from the dead and shit. So we just figured it was a second layer of code. But this is a concept that sticks with me. That's why I mentioned this guy specifically is he talks about how the 10th man if nine out of ten people agree, right. it's the I, I duty. I forget what the specific event was that happened in like Israeli history that he mentions. Yeah, it's some kind of invasion where they were like, no, no, that will never happen. We'll never have that invasion. But then it happened. And right. So they decided if nine or if, if all ten experts agree, like unanimously, that a thing a thing is going to happen. They pick one person to disagree. And that person has to disagree. Yeah. And try to find the holes you in dig. the logic. You dig. To try to find uh, a rebuttal. Yeah. To prove the other nine wrong. To prove the other nine wrong. Right. And that's their job. Right. And so he was the 10th man on the. No, it can't be you know, the undead rising or whatever. Uh, so then it's his job to prove that it actually is. And he just keeps finding more and more evidence. Right. And then he meets another friend, Paul Knight, I think. And they, uh, they actually have the same report and they go over it together. They read it all night and they realize that they're right. Yeah. They, they share notes. Right. That yep. This is actually happening. And this is when we create our first like report. And we reference this report throughout. And it's the Warm Run Night Report. And it's like they detailed a way to prevent this outbreak from happening. Like if we act right now, if we quarantine the infected, we can let it die out. We can minimize casualties. We can be done with it. But nobody believes them. Because the premise is so ridiculous. People coming back from the dead. What do you mean? People coming back from the dead. That can't happen. Right. And we go from him, and we talk to a couple other people who are military. We talk to a, a CIA officer, Bob Archer, and he's the head of the CIA. And he's the one who's like, when you think about the CIA, you probably imagine two of our most popular and enduring myths. The first is that our mission is to search the globe for any conceivable threat to the United States. And the second is that we have the power to perform the first. I love this, like, <laughs> meta commentary on 
the CIA. Yeah. From within the CIA. Yeah, he's basically like, look, we did our best, but we aren't all powerful like you think we are. Just because we're secretive doesn't mean we know everything. Right. And just because we've cultivated this reputation as just another lever of power. Right. Almost to reduce the amount of work that they have to do um, is feels very realistic. Right. And because he's asking everybody, well, didn't you know about it? Like other governments were finding out about it. Didn't you find about Because it's all, you know, uh, interviews. So you literally see the question and the answer. And this is the guy who's like, well, yeah, we did. But like, we don't have the resources. We didn't have the resources to fully to, to do everything because Americans don't like covert operations. We like the Blitz, Blitzkrieg smackdown. I think I've referenced that in a previous podcast. He's like, Americans don't feel like they've won if we don't blow shit up. If we don't have the big, like, you right. know, the fourth quarter touchdown. The needs to be so overwhelmingly no contest right. to be successful if it's, you know, only a, like a 95% survival rate. Right. Then we lost. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's really fascinating because he's also talking about like, we're a volunteer army. We, we have to, we have to shepherd our volunteers. We have to like, we have to cultivate our nationalistic spirit. And when it's gone, it's gone. And we had squandered it. Like we had used all the, he calls them brush fire wars, but he's referencing like Afghanistan where we literally went over there and we did good things, but we did a lot of not great things and a lot of not great things got a lot of publicity. And so we didn't have the nationalistic spirit we needed to be able to raise the army necessary to react immediately to this situation. And so we didn't because we just couldn't, which I can completely see happening and we also talked to, like, one of my favorite characters from the opening, the the blame section, the beginning section, is the, um, like, the drug rep guy. Oh, yeah, the, the pharmaceutical guy. Yeah, the pharmaceutical guy who lives in um, oh, Breckenridge, Breck, Scott. Which I'm pretty sure that's Steve Buscemi. It might, he, I don't know who does it, but it's he lives in Vostok Station. Okay. And it's like in Antarctica. Yes. And he's literally renting it from the Russians because he can't go anywhere because he's because so, he's so hated. hated. Yeah. Because he was like, well, I didn't call it rabies. I made a cure for rabies. Yeah, I, You're welcome. They called it rabies. I made a vaccine for rabies. Yeah. I don't know what your problem is. Like, it's <laughs> basically like, um, yeah, I made a ton of money. Uh, no, I don't care about the consequences, but if there's a hell, well, that's probably where I'm going. Because he, he literally can't go anywhere. Because the, when they called it African rabies, all of these people jumped on the pile. He said we had a cure for like rabies through in record time. And then everybody is on phalanx, which we talk about phalanx multiple times throughout the book, which is another yeah, thing I love referenced. that Max Brooks yeah. does is he'll create these elements and he does not discard them. They just become part of the tapestry of this whole world that he's creating. Because we also talked to that lady who's like an architect. She's a city planner. And she's talking about how like, yeah, I was worried about zombies, but I was also worried about like my husband's boat he was spending too much money on. And my daughter wasn't doing great in school and the medication she needed wasn't great. And like, yeah, I had lots of other things to worry about. So I didn't worry about it. Plus, we were all on phalanx. So who cares? Like, we right. Were all we would have been fine. Peace of phalanx, peace of mind. Yep. 
is what she says. <laughs> and you're like, wow, wow. The fact that he thought through like the initial military, like if we had reacted immediately and decisively, we could have ended this. But we didn't because here's the following reasons, which all make sense. And then like, yes, American businessmen would absolutely jump at the chance to yeah, defraud the, the public. Yeah. Opportunity. Right. And they're like, well, what do you talk about? You know, what, what do you think about people who didn't run because they thought they were protected? And he's like, I didn't tell them that they were protected from, from being a zombie. I didn't say that. They just insinuated that all on their own. That's not my problem. Right. All the paperwork just says rabies. And it is an effective vaccine against rabies. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the the plausible deniability or yeah. the avoidance of responsibility. Yeah, it's really watching the whole first section build is really fascinating. Like we talked to the Russian lady who's the one who's voiced by Seven of Nine. And she talks about um, like they were isolated and... They were deliberately isolated. They couldn't call out. The, the Russians deliberately kept them, like, sequestered. And they ended up rebelling. But they weren't the only group that rebelled. A whole bunch of other groups did at the same time. And so they did the the decimation. Which, this is only the second book that I've ever read that makes an explicit definition of decimation as one-tenth. Yeah. They, they have to reduce the army by one-tenth, and they have to pick. They, they break them up right. in groups Right, it's specifically in the rebelling groups. Yeah. They, the rebelling groups have to pick one out of every ten people have to die. Yep. And they have to be killed by the members of their group. Right, so they literally break them all up into groups of ten, and they have to choose which of them is going to die, and then they have to kill them with rocks. They literally bring them rocks to beat them to death with and she's the one who says we relinquished our freedom that day and we were more than happy to see it go from that moment on we lived in true freedom the freedom to point to someone else and say they told me to do it it's their fault not mine the freedom god help us to say i was only following orders right he has some bangers in this i highlighted quite a few lines in my copy of this book um we go immediately from there to the guy who is like private security for a celebrity. Because as this section builds, we go from there's isolated outbreaks that are happening, but nobody really knows where. Nobody really, there's no like firsthand experiences that are, they're like anecdotal experiences to everyone is starting to have experiences because it's building to the point where it can't be hidden anymore, where literally there are actual zombies everywhere and so we get to a point where there's such a huge outbreak people are literally starting to like isolate themselves in their homes and so they talk to that one guy who's like he's a friend to all these celebrities so he invites them all to his place and he has like food and um like steel doors and okay and there's this giant compound with a fence and like explosives around the perimeter it's this huge defensive compound right and he's live streaming it so he's yes. live streaming them all there. And so they're like, yeah, if the zombies come, we're fine. The zombies can't get over. They can't get through our defenses. But it's not the zombies who come. Yeah. It's the people, just regular people who are watching these live streams. Yeah. And like, holy shit, I can't believe they're flaunting this in our faces that they're 
previous like kind of lucking into wealth uh, and fame has bought them all this protection. Yeah. And we're going to go like Yeah, he's live streaming like this place is safe. This place is, has and they're food just and water. And they're just partying. So all of these civilians who are watching this live stream storm the castle. They all head, they're breaking down the door not to kill everybody, but to like get the women and children inside, protect them. Like find right, a place to right. weigh it, this out. It's here, you know, here's a safe place. Yeah. They're going to get in. Right. To get the safety. And yeah, that's totally like reasonable that that would happen. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy is the one that he just leaves. He's like, no, I'm not killing civilians for you. He's like, yeah, he specifically says, I got paid to shoot zombies. Yeah. Not people. Right. And then, then we move into kind of the first section is kind of our shortest section. The part where the outbreak is happening. We talked to, we can't cover everybody that we talked to. That's why you just need to go read this book. Cause we talked to like an organ transplant guy who talks about how it probably spread through like the underground organ market out of China. Because who knows how many infected kidneys got implanted in people. Right. And he specifically mentions he's like that would totally corneas. explain why yeah. you had all these reports of people just turning into zombies without getting bitten. Right, because they had gotten like an illegal organ and it was in there and it may have been small enough that it took a week, two weeks. If it was infected, it was enough, but that didn't mean it wouldn't take a while to happen. Right. And then we talked to the guy who used to transport people. Like you'd get bribed. Like a smuggler. Like a smuggler yeah. to try to bribe people. Normally it was like slaves, but then all of a sudden it was people trying to get their infected family members out because at the time there was no understanding of what it meant that these people were actually dead. And we talked to a fellow, like a Chinese doctor who goes out to an, like an, a, a rural village and finds that this boy has been infected. And that's the one where everything's going to be all right. That one, the guy mm -hmm. where he's like, he calls a friend in the ministry and he's like, hey, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. But his friend is so morose and they've gone through so much together. He knows that means like shit's going down. And then we move from there to like, OK, shit has gone down. It is full outbreak pandemonium. Pandemonium. If we don't do something soon, that's this is it for the human race. And this is when we meet, there's two sections that I think about a lot in this book. And this is one of them. We meet, um, forget what they actually say his name is. This is his, Jolalawa Azania. X-O-L-E-L-W-A-A-Z-A-N-I-A. Azania. Okay. And he meets him. He's like at a desk and he's like, oh no, you sit down. Come here. Come, I'm, I'm writing the memoirs of Paul Redeker. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so he talks about Paul Paul Redeker, this South African man who'd been shaped during apartheid. And he had created this, this plan to get, like, to save the white Afrikaners in case there was ever a uprising. And now, I mean, there's an uprising, but of the dead. And so the South African government seeks him out. And they're like, do you have a plan for this? And he does. And he tells. Because regardless of how unethical 
this guy was. Yeah. And his plans he were. He wasn't unethical. He was just completely logical. Like logic free from well, reason. Right. Yeah. Right. Some of it was unethical. I mean, it's unethical. Right. Yeah. But e- it's ethics super didn't logical. Enter into the decisions. Yes. But it's super effective. Right. And so he has this reputation for just like brutal, effective planning, kind of throwing away all human sentimentality. Yeah. Um, as a consideration. And so they're like, you know, we we have our top people on this, but you remember that guy? That yeah. guy's name that we don't say anymore because it's so like politically contentious to have any links to him. Yeah, we need him. Yeah, we need him. And so they we go. We need and, his spin on this. And they're expect he's expecting them to come and kill him, but they've come to find out what he's what his plan was because of course he's made a plan. Because he is always making. Because he's plan. always making a plan, and he does, and it's the Redeker plan. And basically, it's like, sorry, but we can't save them all. the The time for saving everybody is past, and it's just now. How can we save anyone? And so you literally right. designate. What's a plan yeah. that we can follow that has a high certainty of saving some? Some. But you and can basically, never it's all. you tell everybody that you go to these safe zones, but most of the safe zones are bait are zones. Bait. Yep. Yes. Only there's only one safe zone basically. Per you, you designate a safe zone. You wall it off. Everyone in it, that's who survives, and everybody else has a purpose or doesn't you, have a purpose. You strategically expose. The other quote safe zones, yeah, to distract the the zombie swarms, right? So that you can save the people in your actual safe zone, and yeah, and so he goes and says it in front of the South African government, and they're all like, "Oh my fucking god!" Because he's literally like, "Yeah, you just leave those people to die." Better yet, you get them to run in the opposite direction, so they're taking all the zombies with them. And then you just leave them. And it's so controversial that they're like, hell no. Oh, no, we won't do that. But then, um, but then they the, do it. The elder statesman mm-hmm. who isn't Mandela. Mandela. Yes, yeah. thank you. It's absolutely not. It's absolutely Mandela. not and it, at all, that guy. It's just the elder statesman of South Africa. Right. He gets up and gives him a hug and he's like, you will, you will save us. And the guy goes, that was the last anyone ever saw of Paul Redeker. And we don't know what happened to him. It's possible that his heart right. broke Th- that they day. They just talk about how he disappeared and how yeah. like his upbringing may have like traumatized him and his whole like um, hyper-logical way of solving problems was a like trauma response yeah. to his upbringing and whatever. And then as he's, like, leaving the building, yeah. he has to sign out from visiting the psychiatric institution, and the room was Paul, Paul Redeker. Redeker. Yeah, because that was Paul, but Paul just couldn't handle and it. And Paul has completely disassociated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go into each country working through their version of the Redeker plan. 
Yeah, pretty much every country institutes some form of the Redeker plan. Right. And one of my favorites is when we talked to the German guy. And I think about this one. There's a couple that I think about a lot, and this is definitely one of them, because he talks about the difference between East Germany and West Germany and how East Germans were taught like a victim a victim mentality. They were taught like, this is being done to you. You are being oppressed. This is happening to you. Uh, where in the West, it was more like you have to shoulder the burden of what you have done, of what you allowed to happen. That's on you. Personal responsibility, no matter what, even if you're wearing a uniform, your personal responsibility comes before anything else. You cannot say, I was just following orders. But then he gets the order to leave. They've been defending this civilian town and they get a code, like a retreat code, but it's in a coded military channel, not in an open channel like it has been because they've been leaving it open so that the public knows where the military is going to be so they can retreat as the military does. Right, because this, the zombie apocalypse is a completely different like military conflict landscape. You don't have yeah. to worry about the enemy listening in on you. Right. So all of the kind of advanced technological stuff you can throw away. Right. Yeah. And we talk about that too because we cover fucking everything. Right. But literally they're like, okay, you guys are going to retreat to this specific coordinates, but don't tell anybody, okay? And he, he won't do it. He almost doesn't do it. And he's like, well, then your entire unit is going to die. So you decide, do all the people with you die or do you do what you're told to do? And so he ends up leaving, but he leaves knowing, like, I'm going to go find this general that gave me that order and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him because he made me, he, he gave the order to basically let these people die. And I can't let that stand. But the guy shoots himself before he can kill him. And we get this line where he says, he's like, I couldn't have hated him more for killing himself. Even if I had killed him, it would have been better than him killing himself. And he's like, why? The, the interviewer is like, um, did this not make you feel any kind of sympathy for him? And he's like, fuck no. He goes, he saw the road ahead, a steep, treacherous mountain road. We'd all have to hike that road, each of us, dragging the boulder of what we'd done behind us. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't shoulder the weight. <laughs> all right, Max. That's a good one, too. Because, you know, it's like these people had to make hard decisions. The people that were involved in the military group had to make hard decisions. Any military right. group. And the generals were imposing all of this potentially... I don't know, conflicting behavior against their their morals. Yeah. And and then the the things that the general had asked their subordinates to do when the time came, their subordinates had all followed through on the yeah. like immoral orders, but then when it came time for him to handle it, he couldn't he couldn't do the same level of discipline. Yeah. Moral dis immoral dis moral discipline. I right. guess um, that his soldiers were able to follow through on. Yeah. And so he committed suicide. Yeah. You know what I like about this book, I think, is it's a good post apocalyptic book. It's a good like end of the world, basically, end of the civilization as we know it book. 
in which we never once fall back on the trope of the single nasty-ass dude who runs his little town and keeps the protagonist from being able to do what they want to do. In fact, we kind of, we meta make fun of that towards the end. We completely avoid all of the tempting, cheap conflict tropes in the typical like zombie horror movie. Right. We even talk to the president of the United States. We don't talk to him, but we talk to his vice president, who is definitely not Biden. (laughs) And they call him the wacko. He's like, that's okay. Everybody calls me that. It's fine. (laughs) But he's the one who's like, um, he did exactly what he needed to do. He literally still held elections even after we had to abandon the capital and retreat to Honolulu because America wanted a Caesar. But if he had become one, that would have meant the end of America. And he says, this is the only time for high ideals because they were like, you shouldn't have high ideals right now. This is a war. And he's like, no, this is the only time for high ideals because those ideals are all we have. We aren't just fighting for our physical survival, but for the survival of our civilization. We don't have the luxury of old world pillars. We don't have a common heritage. We don't have a millennia of history. All we have are the dreams and promises that bind us together. All we have, all we have is what we want to be. Yeah, that line hit me. Yeah. You're like, oh, Jesus. Okay. Yeah. And... This book really could have easily fallen back on the like, well, the leaders did a shitty job. They made shitty decisions and then the people had to save us. But it's like, yes, at the beginning, a lot of decisions were made that were bad decisions. Like we talk about Yonkers. They're going to defeat the zombies at Yonkers. So they're going to, they're going to, Zed heads, I think is what they call them. So we're going to, you know, fire tanks at them and light them up and blow them up or whatever. And this is one of the ones where we talked to Mark Hamill's character. And he's like, yeah, that was all based on how you fight people. But we weren't fighting people. You can't intimidate Zach into turning around. They're never going to get scared. They're never going to stop. And every one of us that falls to them now is an enemy we have to fight. They're never going to get hungry. They're never going to get tired. Right. So it's all these military leaders that have become dependent on all of this technology, all this technology that they are proud of that they kind of force the soldiers to use that in human on human army conflicts is very effective, but it's not against an unthinking swarm. Right. And all of the things that like a lot of the weapons are designed to maim the enemy. Yeah. Well, when you maim a zombie, you don't, kill it you just make it like lay on the ground and crawl in such a way that it's really hard for your soldiers to notice right and then oops they grab you knock you down and and infect your soldiers who then become their soldiers their soldiers yeah i don't know if great times make great men but i know they can kill them That's another one from the wacko section. (laughs) Yeah. And we talk about once we do have our safe zones, we talk about people that were outside the safe zones and people that were in it. Because we talked to that one lady who remembers fleeing north. They were told to flee north. And so she goes with her family. Oh, because the zombies freeze solid. 
Yeah, because zombies freeze solid in the winter. If you can get far enough north, you'll be safe. But really, they were trying to get people to run north to keep them from running towards the safe zone. Right. To these, keep them from these were the bait. Yeah. To keep the safe zones safer. Right. And we talk about like they had to resort to cannibalism because she says, you know, it's the irresponsible part wasn't that they told us to run north. It's that they didn't give us any kind of useful information. It wasn't like, here's the kind of stuff you need to take. Here's the kind of way you need to dress. Here's what you need to do. It's like, no, you just go. You flee north. Just flee north. Flee north. And she's the one who's working in, I think, like Canada, clearing zombies out at the end of the winter. She's got Mm -hmm. like a hatchet and she's just walking along talking and hatcheting zombies in the head because they're frozen into the snow. Yeah. And that's the one where there's like a SpongeBob. SpongeBob um, sleeping bag and a DVD player and a GameCube or something. Yes. Yeah. Yep. There's a couple all dated, these things that a couple dated references. That's one of them. The all of these treasured belongings that people brought with them when yeah. they fled north that were completely useless right. for survival. Right. And as time goes on, we talk to more and more interesting people. We talk to like astronauts that got trapped on the International Space Station and end up helping keep satellites in orbit so that people could keep communicating. Right. So all the communication satellites, the GPS satellites, everything just keeps running. Yeah. And I think another thing that makes his world feel super big without having to give us too much exposition is he'll just drop names. He's like, we saw the Battle of New Delhi or whatever, where, you know, don't believe what they tell you about General Raj Singh. He didn't leave his men. I saw the whole thing. He had to be knocked out and loaded onto that chopper. Well, we never find out about that battle. I mean, we, we see the general again, but we don't know what happened. Right. The the just like side references yeah. to specific events is I love it as a technique of world building. Right. Yeah. It's assuming knowledge, assuming knowledge in the reader or in the. Right. And so you just yeah. have to. Pull that in and like scaffold it into your context of what's going on. And you end up with this very sparsely populated scaffold. Yeah. But it's a humongous scaffold. Right. And then the writer only has to provide you, you know, little bits and pieces just kind of spread around and very we t- evenly. We talked to the guy who wanted to go to North Korea because everyone in North Korea just disappears and we don't clear that shit up. We don't talk about where they went. We don't talk about how they're going to go over there and find out. Nothing. And then we talk to that guy who's making movies because literally one of the things that's affecting everyone, even though they're now in the safe zone and the safe zones have been cleared. Well, people are literally going to bed and not waking up in the morning. They're just dying of despair. And so this guy sets off to make like a movie. I think he, he starts off more hired as like, a propaganda guy. Yeah. And they're like, we need you to make films just to like keep up morale, whatever. But he No, ends no, up- he doesn't get hired to do the the movies cuz remember we've already talked about de-stress. So we talked about like when everybody went into the safe zone, all of the people whose jobs were like white collar behind the desk doing computer stuff were now useless. We needed cleaners, we needed people who could cut apart cars, we needed gardeners, farmers, livestock people all of that we didn't need 
the like executives and the whatever. So it literally flipped society. So all of the people who are like blue collar workers. Oh, that's right. Yeah. There's references to like the one lady that keeps calling her 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 trainer. Yeah. Magda. Magda, because Magda used to be her housekeeper. Right. But now Magda is the subject matter expert on specific survival or like maintenance techniques. Yeah. And now this lady has to learn them from Magda. Right. And so we've talked about that. And so we've kind of established that like the kinds of things that we now, that we consider part of like television and movies and things are no longer essential because if you can't eat, who cares if you can produce a television show? And so he had to try to get the resources to make the movies and he couldn't. So he ended up doing it by himself. He just took a handy cam and went around and filmed, and then he cut it all together himself mm, and released okay, the first I thought, copy. I thought it was kind of like the narrator no, where once, he was employed to do that. Right. No, once he realized, once they realized that it was actually having a positive effect, like cases of people going to bed and not waking up in the morning had significantly dropped. Then they were like, okay, we see the point. And that's when he got the resources to do the bigger movies. Okay. And I yeah, think... Yeah, and I, I remember like people were just lined up to just watch his movie on repeat. Yeah. And he says, I chose to show the other side, the one that gets people out of bed the next morning, makes them scratch and scrape and fight for their lives because someone is telling them that they're going to be okay. And there's a word for that kind of lie. Hope. Yep, that's yeah. why. Um, so that reminds me of this line from uh, Discworld, Terry Pratchett's Discworld, mm-hmm. where death is having a conversation with this woman. And she says, uh, you're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable? And he says, really, as if it was some kind of pink pill? No, humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies, hog fodder. Hogfathers, little... Yes, as practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies so that we can believe the big ones. Yes, justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. <laughs> That's a good one. And so this filmmaker, yeah, he knows that He's, people yeah. need this a narrative to lay over the world. Right. So that it seems like it makes sense. And then when it seems like it makes sense and they actually act on that, it actually does make sense. Right. Yeah, he talks about that. He's like, you know, we had all these big flashy weapons that were absolutely shit at taking out zombies, but they looked super cool and that's what people needed. They needed like, oh, we can take this. We can handle this. We have the technical prowess to be able to do this. Even though this single point laser system that can kill one zombie is utterly isn't going to make the What do they call the ratio? Because they make up that de-stress ratio. That's like the resource to kill ratio. Yeah. And it's how much resources does it take per kill? Right. And it ends up being like 99.9% of the actual zombie kills come from soldiers with just old school rifles. Yeah, that and they have the Lobo, the little bottomizer. Yes. The it's like a shovel, axe, pick combo. And I remember when I first read this book, 
I learned about the fact that the Marines are part of the Navy, but they don't really get funding from the Navy. And I looked into it a little bit. Yeah. I Googled around and yeah, basically the Marines have to, uh, you know, expense everything through the Navy, but then the Navy doesn't put a lot of priority on land forces. Right. Obviously. And so a lot of Marine equipment is improvised. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the amount of work, thought work that went into this book. And then they made the movie. And oh my gosh. Which, and then people are like, oh no, I didn't like the movie. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is like a treatise. This is like somebody wrote a PhD after we had a zombie apocalypse. Yes. Detailing the history of what happened. Which he has a separate book called The Zombie Survival Guide. Yeah. And he has more stories. Like he has mm -hmm. more stories that I haven't read. But yeah, I mean, that's literally what this is. It's like somebody wrote a history of a history that never happened. But a completely believable history. and Right. And so yeah. many things that just like me, I'm good at making stuff up, just winging it, figuring things out as I go. And I read this book and I'm like, wow, I would not have thought of that. Yeah. We talk about like. I would like, not have considered like, this edge case. There's the part where he's talking about the nuclear exchange and how everyone is expecting India and Pakistan to have a nuclear exchange. Like everyone, because they've been because they've, such contentious right, because enemies the tension for so has been long. There. And they're like, and that's why it didn't happen. Because we had the infrastructure to communicate with each other because we have been at each other's throats for so long. Right. All the global pressure has been on them yeah. to make sure that they don't do it. Right. So that all the tools and procedures and training were in place so that when it came down to it, they were like, oh, no, we've prepared for this. Yeah, we've literally talked this out already. It's we like know in exactly a crisis, what to do. You, you don't rise to your level of ability. You fall to your level of training. Right. And that's exactly what happens. So the military exchange or the, the um, atomic exchange isn't between them. It's between two people that you never would have expected because they didn't have the infrastructure available. To do it. Right. They didn't have all that to foundation of prevention yeah. in place. And we talk about like once we get through the once we get through the initial outbreak phase, we immediately go into the like panic, the great panic. And then we go into like safe zone, starting to like get everybody together. And then we go from there to cultural shift. Okay, we have safe zones, everybody's in the safe zones. What do we do now? And that's the part where we talk about like the guy who's doing the videos and the they're doing the training of of people who otherwise don't have practical training. And then we talk to Cuba. And I love the Cuba section because the guy's like, Cuba won the zombie war. Like, it's just the facts. Cuba won the zombie war. It's like we had like one outbreak. We took care of it and we're done because we're, we're an island nation. We're an isolated, like a deliberately long term isolated island nation. We fucking won the zombie war. Like Cuba emerges as the power. Like, right. And for like literally generations, the populace has had to be vigilant against all kinds of things. Right. 
He's like, we were prepared. We're great. We did great. Like, we took in refugees. We had a plan. We put them in camps. And if we maybe spread some rumors about people who, like, camps that rebelled that got fed to the zombies, meh. We didn't have to feed anybody to the zombies. We just had to spread the rumor. And then they, they kept came up, everybody in line. Then they came up with the plan of, like, you can get out and you can work for credit to get other people out. And so it just, he's like, the camps were drained in 10 months. We didn't even have to have refugee camps to support. Literally, everybody came over everybody and they all started working. Everybody became a productive member of society. Right. And he's like, you know, we shared a bond after that. Like, we we came together as a country in a way we never could have come together otherwise. And he says, freedom isn't just something that you have for the sake of having. You have to want something else first. And then you want the freedom to fight for it. <laughs> Go, Max. I know. He also talks about, like, you know, Castro. What happens to Castro? And he's oh, yeah, like, and Castro. Yeah, this down. is like. So fucking good because he's like, oh, he's multiple like, levels of political intrigue just yes. summarized in a paragraph. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's like, and he did this. He presided over our, he's like, the one thing that infected us that otherwise couldn't infect us was the idea of freedom because we brought all these people in from all of these countries where they didn't have Castro, they didn't have the type of government we had. And that's what infected us was the desire for democracy. And instead of holding on to power, Castro facilitated and was the first one to vote himself out of office. And he's like, that's why his and legacy then, is a statue and not a bloodstain against a wall. Right. He he voted himself out of office and he set his entire – he cemented his entire reputation as I'm the one who brought democracy to Cuba. Yes. Yes. He's like, yeah. And he literally yeah. says, that's why his legacy is a statue and not a bloodstain yeah. against a wall. And he's like, oh, that sly bastard. <laughs> God damn, Max Brooks, you really thought through everything. Because then we go from there to like, okay, what do we do now? And they have the, the, the Saratoga conference where they get all the leaders of all these countries together. And they're like, okay, we've consolidated power. We've carved out a safe zone. Oh, yeah. And it's initiated as, hey, we're going to try to start reinitiating trade between these you know, segments of countries that are surviving. Yeah. And they're beginning to recover a little bit. Like, you're above survival threshold. And, hey, maybe we can exchange some things. But then America comes in and is like, we're going all out offensive, offensive against the zombies yeah. and everybody's like what the fuck they're like what we're barely surviving it's like yeah exactly that's it we're barely surviving and that's the legacy we can leave a bare bare minimum survival or we can teach our children that we had the strength to take back the planet right this is the inflection point where now we can actually maintain our survival groups at, on top of actively fighting back yeah and he's like we don't have to do it fast but we need to do it it's important this is the difference between survival and death because if we just have safe zones eventually we're going to be overrun this is going to come back it's going to happen again and we will not have the blueprint to fight we will have given up and so our our children and their children's children will just give up like we did 
So we have to go on the offensive. And so then we talk about how each different country goes on the offensive. And like America, we literally make a line of soldiers north to south and just walk. And it takes like two years to completely cross from one end to the other. And we also talk to the French guy. And this is when we talk to René Abergeois. <laughs> um, and he's the one who's talking about cleaning Paris. The sewers. The sewers. And this is another really good one because he's like, how long did it take to clear all of London? Like three years? Why did they throw us at Paris the way they did? It was ridiculous. There was no planning. We had no equipment. He's like, literally, the catacombs were a subterranean horror land. They were filled with zombies. They were no maps. We kept getting lost. You could fall into a pit of water and all of a sudden... Things were grabbing at your feet. And this is when he's like, omne passe pas. Because he's talking about, I say that like a lot at home, so I felt like I needed to bring it up. Because I quoted a lot, and he's talking about like, they they got to this hospital that had been boarded up, like all the zombies had been closed in. Oh yeah, it was an old sanitarium. His, yeah, that's and where he they, lost his brother. They were just throwing zombies in there, just for containment. Yeah. But then they'd sent these crews in through the sewers, and they were just clearing blocked passages, and they ended up clearing a blocked passage into the sanitarium, and then poof, yeah. just thousands more zombies in the sewers. Yeah, and he's like, I could have just, they could have just blown the tunnel, backed up, left that for somebody else, but they decided to fight. You know, one squad against 300 zombies, and they decided to fight. And he's like, and fucking Why? And he's like, I don't want to hear about your war and how hard it was. You have no fucking idea. And I love the ones that he include that ultimately that doesn't further our story any, but it increases kind of the depth of the world. He's covering all these different, some people like the United States was slow and careful and methodical, and it took years to clear everything out. And some were just like, okay, now go do it. And it just drives home the point that just because everybody did it doesn't mean everybody did it well. Because otherwise, we have some pretty big heroes in this in this book. We have the the president who ends up being a hero. We have, you know, all these other characters that we talk to who end up being like a hero. Uh, uh, like almost an unreal hero, like a Sheridan, like a Babylon 5 Sheridan level hero. Where, mm -hmm. uh, but which is gr good. I like that. I do like that. It is not, like, bleak. Everybody was out for themselves. Some people were, like, the guy, the Breckenridge Scott guy, but not everybody was. That there are people who will act selflessly. There are people who will act selfishly, and there are people who will act selflessly. And he included the whole spectrum. And then we talk to, um, we talk to the military guy one more time, because he's talking about, like, the psychological effect of this march, this forced march across the United States. And he references his dad. Did you catch that? Max Brooks, because Max Brooks' dad is... Surprise! Mel Brooks. Like, Spaceballs Mel Brooks. Like, Robin Hood Men in Tights Mel Brooks. Like, like Blazing Saddles Mel, Mel Brooks. Brooks. And Mel Brooks was also in this 1970s kids CD, or I guess album. And it's called um, Free to Be You and Me. He Anyway, I'm a baby. I'm a baby too. There's the part where they pick up the skulls and they're doing the... Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's um, 
that's oh, was from that, that album. homage to yeah that's from that album because max brooks is one of max brooks is one of the voices of the babies mel brooks is one of the voices of the babies hi i'm a baby i'm a baby too i used to play that for the kids okay yeah so i was like <laughs> i see what you did there i see what you did there max you probably heard that all the time growing up. Yeah. And the other one that I love is the underwater zombies. I mean, of course, we aren't talking about everything that's happening in this book because some of these are short. Some of them are long. We talk about feral children. The audiobook was 12 hours long. Yeah. We talk about feral children. We talk about an escaped Chinese sub that has nuclear ordinance that they end up using in order to take China back from the government that refuses to relinquish control and just keeps throwing people at the zombies. Like it's not building the zombie army and depleting theirs. But then we also talk to the guy who's tagging underwater zombie migration because by the end of it, we've taken back the surface of the planet effectively, but we have not wiped zombies out because so many people became zombies and so many people went to the sea to try to avoid the zombie plague and ended up, getting dumped off the side of ships or ships sank or whatever. Right. So there's these underwater swarms of like zombies under at the bottom of the ocean that are basically dragged along with the, the ocean current. Well, they walk, they move around and they right. don't know what causes them to move in any particular direction. And so this guy is not killing them, just tagging them so they can track their migration. And he's the one who's like, you know, who really lost the zombie war? The whales. He's like they're pretty to... much all the whales are dead. Yeah, pretty much all aquatic, like because they just tr they trample the bottom of the ocean. Right. Yeah. Most of the macro, um, macro fauna of yeah. the ocean are gone right. because the zombies kill them. And he's like, "Whatever, man. Tell it to the whales." The tell it to the whales line. Whew. <laughs> no. He's like, yeah, you want to talk about everything that we lost? Whatever, man. Tell it to the whales. You can't because they're all gone. And just the idea that we go all the way from, hey, we had a couple of reports of this, this rabies that broke out to it has literally become such a fabric thing in our planet that we're not even actively trying to kill them anymore. We're just trying to figure out what they're up to. Because we don't have the resources to destroy all of the zombies under the water. We just have to make sure we know where they're at. So when they do come ashore, we can take care of them there. Yep. Or we talk to the lady who's just walking along having a conversation and killing the killing the zombies that are frozen into the ground. And there's places that we still haven't taken back because they're literally so infested. It's not worth it. Like Iceland or Greenland. They're like the hottest white zone. And it's just, anyway, it's just a, it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating exploration. There's not a wasted moment in the book. There's not a story that you don't feel advances. Whatever. All the characters are engaging yeah. and plausible. Right. Even the ones we only see for a little while or we only see once, you still kind of are like, okay, like I really, and some of them have connections that you have to read the book three or four times to really understand. Like we talked to that otaku guy in Japan. Uh, was it Hitori? The people who are like so socially anxious that they uh, like shut-ins? He calls himself an otaku. Right. And otaku is, they're not the shut-ins. Okay. There's another like subgenre of, um, I don't know, I guess technically mental, mental illness. <laughs> um. But it's like the lock-ins, locked-ins, or something like that is the translation. 
but it's literally people who do not leave their room. Okay. And that's what he is. Because he's so, like, adapted to online society. Right. The, in face-to-face and communication. Face-to-face is, communication yeah. is completely off the table. Yeah. They can't even leave the room and talk to their parents. But they're dependent on their families. Right. And so, yeah, we, so we talk about this otaku guy. Yeah. And it's like a couple weeks after the apocalypse and he's finally like... Well, the been, internet goes down. He's been running out to get just uncooked ramen to eat. Yeah. And then sudden one morning he wakes up and his computer cannot connect to the internet. Yeah. Because he's on a battery backup, but the internet's down. The right. local network connections are down. Right. And he's like, <gasps> and so he ends up fleeing, but he gets a sword as part of his fleeing. Yeah, He ends and, up in this apartment. Right. And he kind of makes note of a few references about the person that lived in that apartment, yes. the owner of the sword. Right. And it's heavily implied in the book, not in the audiobook, because parts of the audiobook are abridged, but it's heavily implied in the book that the sword that he got is actually the sword of the brother of the blind fellow. Blind gardener guy. Yeah, the Hibakusha guy, um, survivor of the atomic bomb. and who It's like his greatest shame in life that he never tried to contact his brother to tell him to flee. Well, we kind of find out what happened to his brother, sort of, because we talked to this guy. And you don't realize that until you've read it as many times as I've read it, which is... A lot. Um, but the graphic audiobook is so easily readable because all of the people that do it are fabulous. Everyone that they got to do it does a perfect job. We even talk about like the social fallout at the end. The fact that Russia becomes a religious city state, like a religious state. Right. The head of the government declares themselves the head of the church. Right. They're the holy Russian empire now because they come up with this final sacrament which is they didn't they were trying to fight with ordinance that was ancient and so a lot of these children were dying a lot of the soldiers were children and a lot of them were getting infected and the only thing you could do once you were infected was kill yourself so every time they would go out for a mission and come back they'd have a whole group of them had that had to kill themselves and they kind of just said okay take care of yourselves yeah we're not going to be involved. You just better be dead when we come back. We'll right. clean up your bodies. And so this one priest was like, nope, no more. No more souls lost to hell because they have to commit suicide. And he and it becomes the church's responsibility. To kill these kids. The priests become the kind of mercy killers. Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, what about reports of people using this as a way to, like, kill off political rivals and stuff? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have to go now. I have to go now. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. So if you've seen the movie and you think you've you've seen the – you think you know what World War Z is all about, <clears throat> incorrect. Go and read the book. It is my favorite zombie book, hands down. Hands down. No competition. I have never read another zombie book like it. I don't think I've ever read another book like it. No. With just the level of detail and thought that went into it and the way it's completely readable. If you tried to write this out, if you tried to write this out as a story, like a, 
a plot novel with this many characters in it, it wouldn't work. Spanning that amount of time because it yeah. spans like 12 years. It would it would feel clunky. Right. In this in this book, there are no like explicit like guided plot beats. Yeah. It's all just very elegantly implied. Yes. Through the sequence of anecdotes from the interviewees. Right. And it's just so deftly done. It doesn't even feel like you're reading as much information as you are. Right. It it feels more like an anthology. Yeah. Except the anthology kind of threads this line through 12 years of kind of historical journaling. Yeah. 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 So 10 out of 10 would read again, have read again and again and again. Audiobook, check. Get the audiobook. Book, book, check. Get the book because it's the book is not abridged. So if you want to get every single tiny little morsel of information out of it, I highly recommend you read the book too. Yeah, it's probably the audiobook is probably like 96%. Yeah, of the, the, abri- full the book. abridgment is extremely small. Uh, but there are just a couple of like paragraphs and lines that you can that I know they cut out because I've listened to the audiobook so many times. Um, and some of them do add a little bit of meaning, but they don't take taking them out didn't take away from the context of the novel. So you get the full picture. You just don't get all the tiny little details. Yeah. We have never done like a just standalone book podcast. I'm not mm. sure how we will wrap it up. Do we need a rating system of some kind? Yeah, I guess this would be our first published Rachel Matt book episode. Yeah. Normally with Kate and I, we just talk about it. And then when it winds up, we wind up. So I guess we can just leave it here. Go check the book out. if you. I mean, you should have read it already. I'm sorry. But you know what? Honestly, we didn't spoil that much. There's so much more in it. There so is. much there more. There really is. Yeah. yeah. There's absolutely no way we could talk about and all so of it. And so much of it is the conveyance of the story rather than the content of the story right yeah and the way he nailed all those individual voices every single one of those characters has to have an individual voice and some of the stuff that he comes up with some of the lines and the concepts and the i just read a couple of quotes but there are some really really thought-provoking lines in there so remember Sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. And don't love the World War Z movie. (laughs) Well, you can if you want to. That's part of our shtick. But love the book more.